everybody. Welcome. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. I'm Jamin Brazil, and I'm going to try to get through this intro in this take. Today, we are joined by Jill Kushner-Bishop, founder and CEO of Multilingual Connections. Founded in 2005, Multilingual Connections is a professional translation service of documents and websites, foreign language audio transcripts, multimedia localization, and, and interpretation services. Prior to founding Multilingual Connections, Jill she was the culture and diversity and language consultant to Chipotle and started her career as an English and Spanish teacher to elementary school students. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. The Michigan State University's Master of Science in Marketing Research Program delivers the number one ranked insights and analytics degree in three formats full-time on campus, full-time online, and part-time online. New for 2022, if you can't commit to their full degree program, simply begin with one of their three core certifications, Insights Design or Insights Analysis. In addition to the certification, all the courses you complete will build towards your graduation. If you're looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSNMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. Again, broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. Language is really important, and I am very thankful for how you started your career and the service you had towards our young people. Thank you. Language has always been such an essential part of who I am and what I do, and I was excited to bring language and culture and the understanding of the connection between the two to all different ages. And language is culture, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you can't you can't express one without the other, and so language is so tied up in who we are, who, what our identities are, how we transmit our culture, how we represent ourselves. And the two are really intricately connected. And so, as a translation agency, we're always making sure that our clients understand the importance of culture, and that it's not just about the language; it's not just about one for one, word for word translation, but that there's so much out there. Yeah. And whether it's translation or research, making sure you're paying attention to both of those sides. What's interesting to me is as a researcher is, and I do a, not a syndicated, privately syndicated, but publicly syndicated report on generational, intergenerational differences is that as I've done this for years, language is so entrenched at a generational level. So for example, Gen Z, they might use terms like drip, whereas Gen X might say, you look nice, or do you like my outfit? Right. So, yep. <laughs> and it's almost like an inappropriateness of encroaching on other generations terms. It, it doesn't just happen at a generational level. It also happens at a regional level. For sure which really starts bubbling up the importance of incorporating the localization of both like surveys as well as, you know, qualitative discussions that are coming in. For sure. You want to be able to connect with people. And if you're speaking a different language in that way with different slang, different intonations, different way of connecting with, you're missing out opportunities to express your voice and hear other people's authentic voice. Yeah, you are. And you're really disguising the insights that, 
want to come out. And that's the key for us as consumer insights professionals is making sure that we're able to draw out that consumer voice and then represent it in a way that's compelling and accurate to our stakeholders. So I wanted to kind of pull back though, before we jump into your business and talk a little bit about your background, because language in a lot of ways, it is a foundation of like, it's our homes define that. Tell us about your parents and how did they informed what you do today? Yeah, it's interesting because I can think about it in a number of different ways. And on the language side, my parents grew up speaking English, but their parents spoke Yiddish and English. My brother and I growing up learned Hebrew and my parents were always kind of in the middle where their parents spoke Yiddish and didn't teach it to them. They missed the opportunity to learn modern Hebrew like my brother and I did. And so both of those generations would use that language in front of them when they didn't want them to understand and they were always left out of the conversation. And so um, it's interesting those in-between generations of when language is transmitted and when it's not and when new languages become a part of who people are. And, and so so English speakers, but they both started out as teachers. My mom was um, an elementary school teacher and my dad was a permanent sub for some, I think, some challenging students who he tells me he used to bum cigarettes from and get down on the floor and do push-ups with. That was a temporary measure for him. He went on to work in the computer industry Industry. And my mom started a number of different businesses and wound up in the senior like independent living, um, assisted living facility world. And yeah, so seeing them do a variety of different things along their paths and try different businesses, trying to figure out what was going to make financial sense for them, be fulfilling for them, kind of gave me the idea that you don't necessarily have to just pick one thing and do it for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I love that. I love that framework. It's, it's interesting that you came from family of teachers. My wife is the same way. Her mom and dad both taught and now she's a sixth grade teach, science teacher, elementary school. And it's a, it is so interesting how your description of how you would have some people in the household, who, members of the household who would ha- be able to have a conversation that other members of the household wouldn't be able to have. It can be, language can be exclusive and it can be inclusive and right. depends on which which side of the desk you're sitting on or which side of the sofa. Yeah, right. And, and in a lot of ways, being multilingual is a superpower. Absolutely. And that's why I went into education actually with a degree in sixth through 12th grade Spanish teaching and loved helping bring language and culture to my students. And then after graduation, I went to Israel and taught high school English as a volunteer, came back and decided that I needed to continue my graduate studies. And so I left teaching from a formal perspective, but it was always part through graduate school and then through the early stages of my business, which I originally established as a corporate language training company and only later became a translation agency and only later started focusing on market research. So it's a good segue. Tell us about your business, Multilingual Connections. Sure. So, well, I'm a linguistic anthropologist by background. I got my doctorate in uh, in linguistic anthropology, looking at efforts to keep a dying dialect of Spanish spoken by the Jews who were exiled from Spain in 1492, spoken by their descendants from disappearing. And I planned on staying in academia, but I wound up getting a job opportunity as a user researcher for a business and technology company. That opportunity brought me back to Chicago 
Chicago and allowed me to continue doing research, albeit in a very different way than in the field in Israel, collecting songs and stories from elderly speakers of this language that I was fascinated by. And after a couple of years, uh, I wound up having an opportunity at Chipotle. And Chipotle was really interesting as a leader in understanding the importance of language and what it could do for employees. At the time, and this was in the early 2000s, many of their line employees were Spanish speaking. And the company knew that if they invested in developing the English skills of the Spanish speaking employees, they'd have more productive, more engaged workforce. They'd have happier customers who got the burritos right the first time. And they'd have less food waste, more promotable workforce, and overall a more productive and financially stable company. And so uh, I was brought on to oversee and roll out training programs in about 100 different Chipotle locations in their central region. And it was an amazing job for somebody who loved language, culture, teaching, and burritos to be able to go into the restaurants, hang out with the line employees, and bring training to people that are usually overlooked after their first one week onboarding training. You know, much of corporate training dollars goes to the executive level, middle management level. And so for hourly employees to get training in language and communication skills to help them do their jobs better, they were so incredibly appreciative. And we saw such tremendous improvements in morale and engagement and promotability. And so I really enjoyed it, but I also started thinking about companies that didn't have the luxury of a dozen people like me doing these services. And so I started planning my exit and uh, thinking about ways that I could help companies on the language and culture side. So in 2005, when I started the business, we were exclusively going to be a language training company, going into hotels and restaurants and helping improve communication at work. But soon after, I started getting requests for translations. And then a couple years later, I decided, why not open a language school for adults and children, do bilingual boot camps for immersion weekends and after school programs for kids and summer camps and adult programs. And then I realized that I couldn't do it all and do it well. So I closed down all of the training to focus on our translation side. It was really difficult for me because it was so the language training was so tied up in my own identity and professionally and personally. But I realized that if I was going to run a business and run it successfully, I had to do less and do it better. So for the last eight years, we've focused on translation, transcription, voiceover, and subtitling. But in the last year, um, given that so many of our clients are within the research space, we started offering multilingual moderation and research support services. And that's something we're really excited to be able to bring to people who might need just a freelance moderator for a handful of interviews or somebody to monitor online bulletin boards, do some report writing, really whatever our clients need. We have people now in about 20 different languages. And where are you guys located? We're in the Chicago area in Evanston, Illinois. But most of our team at this point is global uh, and fully remote. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about qualitative. I want to talk about two things, quant and qual. So actually, let's start with quant. It used to be the case for quantitative research that if I had a survey that was being done in multiple languages, I would have it translated into the language from English to, let's say, Spanish. And then I would have it back translated into English. Is that a practice that is still done? It is still done, though far less. We periodically have clients that request that back translation, but for the most part, when we're doing an outbound survey, we have two linguists work on it. So first, a professional translator who's a native speaker of the target language and of the region. So if we're doing Spanish for Spain, that's going to be very different than Spanish for Latin America, for example, or for the US. And then we have a second translator who works as an editor and a proofreader. So they do side-by-side -side comparison to make sure the content is accurate and then do the proofing and the polishing. 
If we're doing back translations of opens, we'll only typically use one translator in that because it just gets too expensive and too time consuming. But because we do that two linguist service for outbound, there are fewer requests for that back translation just um, for informational purposes to make sure things translate. Yeah. And that actually makes a lot of sense that you would do it that way. In fact, I think it is better practice than how we used to do it just because when we get translated back into English, there's always some sort of artistic license that needs to be connected with translation. And and sometimes that can get kind of screwed up when it comes back and can cause a lot of confusion. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that because we always talk about translation as part art and part science. And you can't you can't have one without the other. And those slight nuances make all the difference. And when you're just doing the back translation to make sure the content is there, you might miss whether the nuance is there. The words might make sense, but are you really getting at the heart of the issue? And so right. um, so that's something that you can't always detect. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting too. We're, I'm seeing survey designs change pretty dramatically for the first time in my career. Basically for the last 25 years, surveys have maintained the basic format that was created back when we did caddy or, or telephone-based and, or in-person research. In other words, you had long questions and you know answer choices that would be equally as long. And really for the last, I would say co- through COVID, as more and more researchers moved strictly online, we're seeing a lot shorter question format and even quite shorter questionnaires, which in a lot of ways speaks to how people are reading now, but not necessarily uh, communicating at a, at a language level. And so I was, I'm curious, are you seeing similar trends? I haven't noticed that, but that's something, and I, as owner, I'm not managing the projects. And so I'm not evaluating all of the documents from start to finish, but it's something that I'm curious about and what the motivation is. So you said that people are reading differently, or is it that we're just so yeah, far less. beyond, we just can't take in more content. So we're only going to answer <laughs> things if they're in short little bites. Yeah, I think if you, you know, some research I've done, if you look at younger audiences, actually the younger the audience, then the less proclivity they have to spend time giving you feedback, which right. means that the implication there is you need to really be focused on the questions that you ask. But in addition to that, uh, the interpretation of the questions or, you know, if, if I'm going to read it, let's say two sentences, then, you know, I need to process those two sentences. But the internet has largely trained people to be headline oriented or thumbnail right. framed, which is changing the way that people are internalizing the words that they see. Wow. And that makes a lot of sense. And it means you have to make sure that the questions that you're answering get people immediately and that they connect to them. And when you think from a translation perspective, you've only got five or seven words instead of 15. You have to make sure that they're the right words and phrased in a way that is going to convey things accurately, efficiently, and on a cultural level with that nuance that will um, make people feel like the questions were written for them and not translated. Yeah, exactly. It's just an interesting trend that I've Just started noticing. So, you know, maybe we revisit this in a year. For sure. See if you're seeing the same thing. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So you're an entrepreneur, which is a terrifying prospect. I think it's Elon Musk that said starting a business is a lot or operating a business is a lot like staring into the abyss while chewing glass. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah, I know. And I I, that, that certainly kind of resonates with me on various ventures that I've done and I'm doing. I am curious if you were to go back in time 
What's some advice you would give your younger self? Oh, I'd probably start with take take at least one business or accounting class in college. I started this completely blind. And I also, when I started the business, I thought it was just going to be me consulting. So I had my stack of business cards. I had my flip phone. I had my laptop and a website that my husband designed for me and I was like, and the yellow pages. I was like, okay, we're going to, I'll go. And you know, worst case scenario in a few months, if this isn't working, I'll do something else. I never expected to build a business. I never expected to have 32 employees across multiple continents and doing the type of work we do. And I'm actually glad because I don't know that I would have done it had I known. I think I would have felt too intimidated by that. So, you know, looking at things, taking things bit by bit and being flexible enough to pivot. I, I mentioned before the language training classes that we did that I loved and it was so much a part of who I was and we brought people into our space. We had four classes and a cafe area and I would watch these little kids run around and sing in Korean or Chinese and hear stories of people taking our bilingual boot camp or doing private lessons and then going on a destination wedding and coming back with all these wonderful things to say. And so there's so much immediacy and I loved it, but financially it just wasn't viable, wasn't scalable or sustainable. And I had to make the really difficult decision to close it down. And so being open to pivoting, and I probably should have pivoted earlier, but I just wasn't ready. And so at the end of the day, it's not a big deal whether it had happened a year or two earlier or not, but you have to be flexible and open to opportunities. And you also have to be willing to look at things and be really honest. And if the baby's ugly, say it's ugly. If you're losing money, you have to figure out ultimately like what's going to make sense in the long term and how long are you willing to do something that you love, even though it doesn't make business sense. And sometimes there are still justifiable reasons to do it, but other times they're not. And in my situation, that was uh, that was certainly not. But I would say also surround yourself with people that know more than you, you know, smarter than you, more experience with you. I did that later, but again, I, because I wasn't sure what kind of business I was building, I was just kind of figuring it out. Nowadays, I would have involved more people sooner and been more strategic, but I'm thrilled with how things turned out. So, you know, you never know if you'd made those decisions earlier on and they might've brought you in a different situation, you know, in a different direction. And that could have been better and it could have been worse. But I think just being open to all different possibilities and um, yeah, I'm glad I took the risk and I'm, I'm thrilled with where we've gotten to at this point. Yeah, of course, I don't probably have the opportunity to interview very many people that aren't glad they took the risk. In other words, you know, these most of the people that I have on the show are people that have made it, air quotes, <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> But I will tell you that I, I completely agree with all points. I, I think, you know, for me, the biggest blind spot was accounting. And there's a difference between like applied accounting and being able to make money. So I'm not talking about being an accountant. I'm talking about like being an entrepreneur, generating cash, like what you did, but then being able to interpret that cash in, in a lot of ways, it's just a language, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, my balance sheet is a language that I don't speak, but I'm glad that I have people that do speak it. And there are other areas of the business that <laughs> Who I interpret it for you. Yes, thank God. <laughs> and I think for the first year, I had to remind myself PL, profit and loss, profit and loss, PL, profit and loss. And I was already running a relatively successful business, but I could figure things out. But it's those are those little things, maybe not so little. I knew what it looked like. I knew what it did, but I would forget what it meant. I forget what it stood for. But I had other things to bring to the business. So somebody that might have been able to, you know, understand financial um, statements from the beginning might not have had some of the creativity or the ideas behind the business. And so you need a little right. bit of everything. And you need people yeah. who really excel in all those different areas. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and it's just it is interesting that we have a, have a similar path. I think the other point that you said is that there's a securitist journey of entrepreneurship and you have a vision of what you think it's going to look like, right? But in a lot of ways the market will direct you if you listen to it. Yes. And yeah, I think about what my vision was and I think when I started the business, I thought I'll, I'll make more money and I'll have more flexibility than if I had a job. And I don't know how many years it took before that came true. And some years it still doesn't come true. So there's, uh, you have that vision and then you have the reality, which are often very different. But sometimes that reality is even better than what that vision was initially. Yeah, for sure. For sure. If you had it to do all over again, would you? That is a good question. And I would say, despite the fact that periodically I think, wow, 30 years teaching high school Spanish with a PhD, I'd probably be doing pretty well, have summers off, you know, great vacation time, lots of fulfillment. But I still think I would. Absolutely. There's nothing that can compare to the ownership and creativity of creating this, creating a business, not just for yourself, and not just for your clients, but for your people. And in the last couple of years, I've really shifted. Of course, I care about my clients and I love our clients and we couldn't do what we're doing without our clients, but I really wanna create a great company for our people and keep them excited and engaged and connected to each other and to the work that we're doing and to our mission of connecting people and creating connections across the world. And so it has been such an honor to see the friendships that have formed, the development, the careers that have been launched through hiring and retaining these amazing people. And so I think that in itself has been such a fulfillment that I can't imagine I would have gotten anywhere else. My last question, what is your personal motto? So I don't really have one. <laughs> However, when I think about what my personally and professionally, it's always been about creating connections. My company is called Multilingual Connections, where whether I was traveling internationally and trying to create connections, hosting foreign exchange students in my home, trying to bring connections to them and to my family or at work, the type of work that we're doing, connecting people, whether it's translation, transcription or research, it's always been about the connections. And so I think that could probably um, work as my motto if pressed. Our guest today has been Jill Bishop, founder and CEO of Multilingual Connections. Jill, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Everyone else, I hope you enjoyed it. You can find Jill's contact information in the show notes. As always, if you screen capture and tag me on a LinkedIn or Twitter post with this episode, I will send you a free t-shirt.